Well, thank you very much uh, for inviting me. Um, I must say that uh, my title, though it's not exactly, um, it wasn't exactly made under false pretenses, um, is um, deceptive to a degree because I begin with uh, contemporary um, jihadi uh, narratives of martyrdom, but very quickly move backwards in time to the 19th and then the 20th centuries, only to return to Al-Qaeda and all that lot at the very end of my paper. So um, uh, it's a historical paper by and large, uh, for which I hope you'll forgive me. A global history only becomes possible once the human race emerges as its subject. All other claims to such a history are concerned only with expanding old ideas of context to the ends of the earth, so as to locate within them the ever-growing patterns of interaction and interdependence among men. But as the subject of a global history, humanity must be conceived of in its sheer materiality, the sum of living beings making up the species. Anything else, such as um, the figure of the humanist individual, it dissolves the race into a mere category in the history of ideas. And while the species is also a figure of this kind, its elevation into the subject of history quite transforms the latter. For unlike the humanist individual, who serves either as a universal ideal or as the reality of some particular history, mankind is always self-equivalent and can neither match up to nor short, fall short of itself. In this way, the species provides history with its first global subject and indeed with its most sublime actor after God. Of course, humanity cannot be said to exist as an actor in any unified or self-conscious way, these criteria being themselves borrowed from the individual. And yet the species is for the moment deprived even of the collective agency provided by political institutions. Yet it is clear that the history of mankind can no longer be confined to the doings of men and women in their multiplicity, but must deal with the fate of the race as a singularity. While 19 in such things as climate change, uh, nuclear holocaust, etc. While 19th century thinkers in Europe produced a number of accounts purporting to be um, histories of humanity, often entailing the rise of some race or civilization to global dominance, it was in the 20th that the species came to achieve a properly historical reality. But this only happened when the interconnections and dependencies first created by colonial expansion suddenly put the world itself at stake in moments of political or economic crises beginning with the Great War. In diverse fields ranging from literature to medicine, but significantly not politics, the human race began to assume an historical countenance during this period, emerging as the globe's true subject during the Cold War, whose nuclear arsenals made its extinction a real possibility. It was mortality that endowed the species with a properly historical reality. And indeed, um, uh, it's even possible to think of um, this, uh, the, 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 uh, the return of the idea of Armageddon, of um, you know, the end of the world, um, in a completely secularized way um, from the Second World War as a kind of uh, bizarre um, retreading of older religious notions of um, uh, apocalypse. The vocabulary of mutually assured destruction and nuclear winter may have fallen into disuse after the Cold War, but humanity continues to be imagined as the globe's truest subject, if only in its negative form as a victim of pandemics or climate change. The species therefore takes on a paradoxical form in our day, as a potential actor in history, yet one whose reality cannot be discounted. 
for with its transformation into a statistically measurable figure whose future we can both predict and even determine, humanity has ceased to be the abstraction and ideal it once was. As such, it provides a sociological model of universality for global movements of all kinds, which can then do, you know, refer to um, the human race as a new kind of entity. In this lecture, I want to look at the way in which Islam comes to provide the species with its subjectivity in modern times. Beginning with the example of how those who participate in global forms of militancy attempt to speak in the name of humanity, I will go on to consider the history of this claim among Muslim thinkers in South Asia and conclude by reflecting upon the consequences of such efforts to represent mankind. Rather than tracking the development of this extraordinary endeavor within some continuous genealogy, I will show how detached it is from any single intellectual or political position, being in this respect part of a truly universal enterprise. Though in hiding somewhere between Pakistan and Afghanistan, one of Al-Qaeda's chief spokesmen was able to answer a series of questions from friends and foes around the world in April 2008. Submitted to Ayman al-Zawahiri through the internet and responded to in the same fashion, these queries included many, expostulate, many expostulating with Osama bin Laden's lieutenant about the indiscriminate violence resorted to by those fighting in the name of Islam. Typical was this condemnation of militant methods, and I quote, How do you reconcile the values of your medical training, because Zabahiri is a surgeon, as you know, to help people and prolong their lives with the fact that you killed Anwar al-Sadat and that you shaped the minds of bombers and suicide commandos? Zawahi responded to, this, to his questioner in the following way. During my medical studies, I learned that life is Allah's miracle and his gift. Thus, one must be careful to obey him. I have learned from surgery about how to save the body by amputating failing organs and removing cancers and how to cure illness-inducing bacteria. Medicine, when practiced as a sacrifice to Allah and to help the oppressed, will grant the soul happiness and joy which will never be experienced by those who have twisted it into a tool for greed, robbing others and exploiting their pain for their own benefit. This justification of violence, um, an evasive justification of violence, illustrates the crucial role that the language of humanity plays in the narrative of militancy. Rather than being dedicated solely to the cause of Islam, in other words, militancy stakes claim to mankind itself as an ideal. Thus, Zawahiri describes terrorism as a form of surgery whose aim is to save the human race from the cancers and other ailments that threaten its global body. Identified with medicine practiced according to the Hippocratic Oath, this vision of militancy as a form of sacrifice for the sake of mankind is opposed to humanitarianism in its conventional and commercially organized forms, which Zawahiri argues are founded upon exploitation and profit. By representing the species as an individual, or rather by making the two interchangeable, Zawahiri treats it as a potential subject, one that requires the healing touch of jihad to speak in its own name. Militant Islam's attempt to represent humanity as an historical actor come to the fore in Ayman al-Zawahiri's response to another question put him over the internet. The following. Can you clear up the confusion that many Westerners have about technology? On the one hand, you shun modern values, but on the other hand, you accept modern Western technology such as the internet. Hastening to brush aside any account of terrorism that would confine it to some contradiction between Muslim tradition and Western modernity, 
Zawahiri makes it clear that even the greatest enemies must share a common history and partake of each other's achievements as members of the same species. In other words, he moves beyond the narratives of race or civilization from which the distinction of traditional and modern is often derived to focus on the human race as history's true subject. And this is his answer, or part of his answer. This question is based on two false premises. The fact that I accept or shun a certain value is not based on whether it is ancient or modern. But I am opposed to polytheism, scorning religion, establishing relations based on material benefit and achieving sensory pleasures, lying, deceiving, acting on self-interest, alcoholism, gambling, vices, taking over other people's countries and oppressing them, stealing the riches of others, double standards, immunity against being held accountable for crimes for which others will be punished, spreading killing, abuse, destruction, and the destruction of the environment and climate merely to master the land, rob, and plunder. Let us pause here to note that apart from the ritual invocation of polytheism and blasphemy at the beginning of his response, there is nothing particularly Islamic about this assortment of crimes. Indeed, Zawahiri is eager to prove that he opposes the very things that all human beings do. He then goes on to say that the West has betrayed its kinship with the rest of the species by oppressing and plundering it. And I quote him, Scientific knowledge is neither Eastern nor Western. It is the property of mankind which circulates among us equally in various times and places. The scientific progress of the West was originally based on our riches, which they are still plundering to this day. Where is our stolen share? Secondly, the West tried to cover up its crimes against us and against the rest of mankind by priding itself in its scientific supremacy. Under the cover of this progress, they have attempted to convince occupied and weaker nations that they, the West, are superior to them and more deserving to manage the world and to plunder its riches and to demean other people. Neither the Muslims nor anyone else will be fooled by this trick any longer. Arguably the operative category in militant thinking, humanity brings Muslims and infidels together in such a way as to make possible relations of amity as well as enmity among them. I will be concerned here with the ambivalence that marks this relationship of would-be friends and foes, a quality evident in the passage from Zawahiri cited above. For at the same time, for the same moment that he claims the achievements of his enemies as a properly human inheritance, bin Laden's most famous follower also suggests that some of the credit for amassing this legacy was stolen from Muslims and needs recovering. Now this kind of reasoning possesses a history going back to the 19th century, when Muslim reformers sought by such apologetics to explain as well as learn from the scientific and technological dominance of Europe's colonial powers. This they did by devaluing the categories of race and civilization as sites of European privilege and bringing humanity to the fore as history's true subject. Islam, therefore, was said to represent the species by refusing to differentiate between its various components. I move now um, to the first section um, of the paper called Losing Islam to the Infidel. Perhaps the first and certainly the most influential Muslim thinker to forge such a link between Islam and humanity was India's Sayyid Ahmad Khan, a reformer of the 19th century whose life was dedicated to modernizing his co-religionists, largely by way of inculcating Western education among them. In a monumental effort of scriptural interpretation and exegesis, Khan contended that Islam, when cleansed of superstitious accretions, 
was both the most natural and the most universal of religions. This in the sense of being wholly in conformity with the laws of nature and so founded for the benefit of all mankind. No doctrinal statement, in other words. It's nature that gives Islam its universality. Whatever the precedence and implications of this claim, extrapolated from the evaluation of Muhammad's mission by writers like Gibbon and Carlyle as much as from any Muslim source, it is clear that Islam's universality was predicated upon its equivalence with 19th century notions of nature and therefore with the human species, both of which stood outside the doctrinal sphere of religion to provide the criteria of its veracity. Islam's conformity with nature conceived as law had to be repeatedly demonstrated so that it might be represented as the universal religion of mankind. One consequence of naturalizing religion in this way was to generalize its doctrinal vocabulary beyond the boundaries of Islam so that it now became possible to think even of its central concepts as being universal to humanity. Of course, Muslim thinkers in the past had sought precedents and prognostications for Muhammad's revelation by linking it to religions predating Islam, well beyond the monotheistic coterie this latter formed with Judaism and Christianity. While the Muslim doctrines thus discovered in Hinduism, Buddhism, or Zoroastrianism might place all these religions within some universal history, there was no question about Islam representing its pinnacle. But the Victorian naturalization of religion meant that if Muslims could be said to have discovered the unity of mankind by way of Islam, or even to have developed this unity to its fullest potential, they could not claim to possess it exclusively or indeed forever. There was always the possibility that others might be able to lay claim to Islam itself, albeit under a different name, if Muslims were to abandon their duty to represent the human race. And you'll recall that statement, the second statement that I read from Zawahiri, where he says, you know, the, the, the progress, the scientific progress of the West is based upon our riches. They've stolen it from us. We somehow need to, therefore, recover ourselves uh, from the West itself. This is very common from the 19th century, this theme. In fact, there were, ma there were many instances from the last decades of the 19th century of prominent Muslim figures in India warning that unbelievers had come into possession of Islam's central concepts and categories. A good example of this is provided by the century's most popular Urdu text, an epic poem on the rise and fall of Islam by Sayyid Ahmad Khan's disciple Altaf Hussein Hali. First published in 1879, the Musaddas Darmad o Islam sings of the virtues that brought Muslims political power in times past and put them at the forefront of the arts and, science and sciences. Hali then catalogues the decline of India's Muslims in particular and those of the world at large in practically every department of, li of social life, attributing their decadence to the betrayal of Islamic virtues. Chief among these was fidelity to nature, seen as providing both the form and the content of human knowledge as a set of universal laws. While Muslims might have forsaken such virtues, others, like Europe's Christians, are said to have embraced them and thus moved past the Prophet's followers in representing humanity. So Hali tells his lead readers that the nations of the West have succeeded Muslims at the head of the species by naturalizing religion into the service of mankind. I have quotations, but for lack of time, I'll skip them. I can come back to them later. In order to make the argument that Islam's role has been taken over by the Christian West, Hali had to redefine the Muslim Ummah or community in sociological terms. 
no longer a juridical or theological category defined by ritual authority and political practice, the Ummah instead became a society that could never again be contained within legal categories and one whose global character placed Islam outside the jurisdiction of any state. While the loss of political power, therefore, was seen in the poem as a sign of decline, its restoration did not serve as a condition for Muslim greatness. Uh, Hali has this to say about Islam's loss of worldly dominion and its as yet unsuccessful quest to find another way of representing the progress of the human race. He says, now that government has performed its proper function, Islam has no need for it left. But alas, O community of the glory of man, humanity departed together with it. Government was like a guilt covering upon you. As soon as it peeled off, your innate capacity emerged. There are many nations of the world who do not possess the special quality of empire. But nowhere can so great a calamity have come as here, where each house is overshadowed by abasement. The partridge and the falcon all are high up in the sky. It is only we who lack wing and pinion. Important about the new Muslim community, conceived in sociological terms, right, as a set of people who can be enumerated. It's no longer a theological category, in other words. When Hali talks about the Ummah, he's talking about real people who live in real places, real lives. Um, and he's not talking about um, uh, an ideal, the ideal of a Muslim community or the Muslim community seen as a legal category. And this, I think, is relatively new. Important about the new Muslim community is its elegiac character, um, of which you got, hopefully, an impression from the last quotation. And while this mournful vision of the Ummah is often considered the consequence of colonial dispossession, I would like to argue for a more complex reading of the trope. For the narrative of Muslim decline pioneered by Hali is related to another common in Europe at the same time. This is the story of European decadence, conceived not in political or juridical terms, exemplified by the fall of kingdoms and dynasties, but in the vision of exhausted civilizations and depleted races. Like the Ummah, in other words, race and civilization are categories that may incorporate state power, but continue to embody a people's greatness beyond its confines. As a consequence, there have, since the 18th century, also been global categories, whose context is provided but other civilizations and races spread across the surface of the earth. So as you, you, you know, these themes of European decadence and decline emerge at the very time when Europe's um, uh, states, its great states and empires are at their height. You know, they've never actually been so powerful. Um, so obviously this theme is not about as it were, the political or juridical decline of these entities, or even really of their corruption, but of something other. Um, uh, these themes of racial and civilizational decline and decadence uh, operate, I think, um, in, a, in a newly conceived global arena where they, they are juxtaposed with other races and civilizations that do not fall within political and juridical boundaries, between the juridical and political boundaries of established states. By the 19th century, race, civilization, and religious community had become categories that took for their context the human race as such, though they could only do so by dividing it into a set of comparable and competitive sociological formations, like the Islamic Ummah, right, which did not fall within any political boundaries. And this meant that while humanity had abandoned its earlier roles of essence, abstraction, and regulative ideal to provide the demographic background for such global categories like race and civilization, 
it still did not exist as a subject in its own right. So the narrative of decline characteristic of these new formations might well represent a degree of ambivalence about their lack of political reality as much as that of the species itself. For built into the categories of race, civilization, and religious community during this period was the fantasy of encompassing humanity as a whole, either by a process of assimilation or within some kind of hierarchical order. Now the Ummah, um, imagined by writers like Hali, dispensed with race and dealt with civilization only in a minor key. These categories existing uneasily in languages like Urdu merely as new glosses for older terms like lineage, nasal, or pedigree, nasab, habitation, tamadun, or refinement, tazib, none of which possessed a territorial character. Indeed, the Muslim community was celebrated precisely for its ethnic and cultural diversity, and therefore seen as being more natural to the species than race and civilization. But as an expression of Islam's fidelity to nature, this kind of universality surpassed the ummah, constituting a line of flight toward the, towards the horizon of humanity. It was only in this fleeting way that the Muslim community could represent a species still lacking subjectivity. So they all talk about humanity, but humanity, of course, has no, neither juridical nor political existence. And is conceptualized in this time, indeed not in political terms at all, but in medical and literary aesthetic terms often. Like some of the narratives dealing with the decadence of races or civilizations, the story of Islam's decline was predicated upon the inability of its adherents to keep pace with their own universality. In making this case, of course, Hali was invoking, invoking an old literary model in which the fall of kingdoms was attributed to the, to the moral corruption of their rulers, itself a consequence of worldly success. More than the ancient kingdoms that had in the past provided such cautionary tales, it was the career of Christianity that now offered Muslims warning about the perils of victory. At times, both Sayyid Ahmad Khan and Hali saw in Christianity's very success a premonition of failure, with its religious spirit eclipsed by Europe's material glory in much the same way they thought had happened to Islam. It was not these gentlemen of the 19th century, however, but a writer from the 20th who had the most to say on this issue. Acclaimed today as the spiritual father of Pakistan, Muhammad Iqbal argued that when Christian virtues were universalized in Europe to become secular values, they ended up perverting both religious and profane life there. So he thought that the division of liberal societies into public and private realms had as its premise the metaphysical distinction of matter and spirit, which turned religion into a merely individual ideal and gave collective life over to exploitation of every kind, thus bifurcating humanity into master and slave classes races and even continents. As Iqbal put it in a speech from 1930, Europe uncritically accepted the duality of spirit and matter probably from Manichaean thought. Her best thinkers are realizing this initial mistake today, but her statesmen are indirectly forcing the world to accept it as an unquestionable dogma. It is then this mistaken separation of spiritual and temporal which has largely influenced European religious and political thought and has resulted practically in the total exclusion of Christianity from the life of European states. The result is a set of mutually ill-adjusted states dominated by interests not human but national. So people like Iqbal and those before and after him were much exercised about the, what they saw as the decline of Christianity in Europe. Um, uh, they were um, as interested 
uh, in the revival of Christianity as in that of Islam. The two things did not oppose each other. Taking warning from the history of Christianity, Iqbal thought that Muslims should reclaim their lost universality by purifying Islam of the corruption wrought by its worldly success, which for him included ridding it of what he called the stamp of Arabian imperialism. Not just European imperialism, but Arabian imperialism as well. For like Hali before him, Iqbal was ambivalent about Islam's history of worldly success and thought that Muslims had the opportunity of rethinking the universality of mission in its aftermath. Islam's post-imperial mission, however, was not to be a quietist one, but instead an effort to represent the species against the false claims of states, both colonial and national. Muslim universality, in other words, was now to be found in the idea of human solidarity alone and set against what Iqbal saw as the factional brutalities of nation-states in particular. While Muslim states might still exist and could even be cherished, Islam's abstract universality could no longer be grounded in them, being manifested rather in the adoption of a critical attitude towards all politics. It was this purely human universality that Muslims had to recover, not simply from their own history, but from the virtues of others as well. Therefore, the whole theme of learning from the West, um, of, as it were, recovering oneself from the West, the West that has stolen one's own riches and developed them to an unprecedented degree. Of course, generalizing Islamic virtues beyond the Muslim community was an ambivalent process since it could serve to promote cohabitation as much as competition with unbelievers. Two of Muhammad Iqbal's poems, probably the most popular Urdu compositions of the 20th century, provide good examples of this. Among the many imitations of Hali's epic on the Ummah's decline and composed in the same meter as the Musaddas, which I had cited earlier, this pair of laments is regularly recited on Pakistani radio and television with the country's most celebrated performers recording their own versions of it as a rite of passage. Published in 1909 and called Shikwa or Complaint, the first work accuses God of abandoning Muslims for unbelievers by showering upon them the good things of the earth and leaving the former with a merely imaginary world. This dereliction was all the more unjust given that Muslims had, by means of great sacrifices, freed men from slavery and spread the doctrine of human equality among them. Iqbal pictures idols rejoicing at the sight of Muslims departing the world with Qurans tucked under their arms, thus providing us with one of the first posthumous descriptions of Islam, a vision standing apart from earlier apocalyptic narratives concerned with the coming of the Messiah and the end of time. So he has a, even though it's a piece of literature, he has an almost sociological, uh, as I was saying earlier, view of Islam's decline, where you know, portrayed in the figure of the Muslims who tuck their Qurans under their arms and you know, trundle off the stage of history, of Hegel's stage of history. He even goes so far as to call God a woman, dispensing favors now to her Muslim lover and now to his infidel rivals. Deploying the erotic vocabulary of the traditional lyric to great effect, Iqbal turns the stock figure of the rival for a mistress's affection into that of the strangers, Christians in this sense, in this uh, uh, view, who would replace Muslims as God's elect and the spokesmen of their race. Because as Hali had said earlier, the West had taken over from Islam and now, because of its loyalty and its fidelity to nature, um, conceived of human betterment um, as a global ideal. A few years after the publication of this acclaimed and controversial work, Iqbal wrote the Jawab-e-Shikwa, or Complaints Answer, in which he had God respond to the first poem 
thus claiming for his composition the state status of divine speech. In this heavenly monologue of 1913, Muslims are blamed for abandoning their duty to represent mankind, not only by taking leave of world-making activities like science and industry, but more importantly by forsaking the quest for freedom and equality to live upon past glories, described as the worship of so many idols. If infidels adopt the ways of Muslims, says the poem's divine interlocutor, then it is only right that they should receive the damsels and palaces promised believers. But Muslim decline is finally blamed on the modern age itself, likened to a fire that feeds on traditional communities, though its flames can purify religions as well as destroy them. To find a garden in the midst of modernity's fire, Muslims must take charge of the stylus and tablet that God resigns to them and write out their own history, forsaking Islam's political and doctrinal inheritance if they must, as long as they remain loyal to the Prophet. This image, by the way, of the fire, of modernity's fire, of course, is a reference to stories of Abraham, right? Abraham who is put in the f into flames by Nimrod and who finds a garden in the midst of that fire, uh, something um, uh, that obviously has a lengthy Jewish and Christian history and is uh, an important um, um, image for Muslims as well. Uh, Iqbal also writes about the stylus and the tablet. This is how either angels are described as writing out creation um, or as writing out the fate of different people um, uh, on a, with the stylus and tablet or God himself is seen as being as writing creation itself upon the stylus of an unformed uh, universe so God tells Muslims here here take the stylus and tablet write your own destiny as long as you remain loyal to the prophet Muhammad Iqbal made it clear in this poem and elsewhere that the only thing keeping Muslims true to their religion's legacy was fidelity to the Prophet who represented the historical origins of its universality. For in the Apostles' claim to be God's final messenger, Iqbal saw the emergence of humanity as an actor in its own right, one cut off from the leading strings of divine guidance and put in charge of its own destiny. The founding of Islam thus signaled the coming to maturity of the human race, with the Prophet renouncing divine authority to mankind in the same way that certain European writers thought Christ had done, putting an end to God's action in the world and marking the beginning of human history. So um, just as uh, in some visions of Jesus who brings together man and God uh, in one person, um, uh, for Iqbal, Muhammad, uh, though he does not as it were, um, uh, become an image of the divine essence by annulling prophecy with himself, basically threw mankind on to its own resources and said, uh, and so for Iqbal, this act of self-annulment was the act by which humanity comes to be conceptualized as an historical actor for the first time because God will no longer write history. Mankind will now write its own history. Right? So he sees this portentous significance in Muhammad's self-annulment of prophecy. They will come no more after me. In either case, the old theme of God become man because now God, as it were, has given up to man. Right? He's given, as we saw in the poem, the stylus and the tablet to mankind. This is, of course, this you will remember, Muhammad Iqbal is one of the most important thinkers of modern Islam. None of these things he says are considered blasphemous. In either case, the old theme of God become man was reactivated, drawn as it is from a long Christian as well as Muslim history. 
Paradoxically, it was the very particularity of this origin that served as a link to Islam's lost universality, whose other virtues had all escaped the grasp of religion to be generalized across the human race. So no longer, it's no longer Iqbal saying, like Sayyid al Khan had said, look, Islam is more congruent of nature than any other religion, um, and therefore Muslims are better fitted to represent the human race than anyone else, because Islam is a natural religion. Right? Um, Iqbal no longer talks about nature. He talks about history, as I'll go on to describe. For him, it is the origins of this universality that are important. The Prophet's self-annulment means that Islam can claim, in his view, to, as it were, have literally invented humanity as a historical category, right? of have, having conceptually set humanity free. Once Islam had ceased to provide a conceptual matrix for mankind's unity, in other words, it could only represent the species by such fragmentary acts as fidelity to Muhammad, where you recall the beginnings of your great moment in history. But this means that history has now replaced nature as a criterion of Muslim universality, something of which Iqbal was fully conscious, claiming that Islam set itself against the particularity of what he called nature's race-making work. So in an open letter to uh, Jawaharlal Nehru in 1936, he has this to say. The student of history knows very well that Islam was born at a time when the old principles of human unification, such as blood relationship and throne culture, were failing. It, therefore, finds that the principle of human unification not in the blood and bones, but in the mind of man. Indeed, its social message to mankind is, de-racialize yourself or perish by internecine war. It is no exaggeration to say that Islam looks askance at nature's race-building plans and creates by means of its peculiar institutions an outlook which would counteract the race-building forces of nature. So for Iqbal, nature is no longer the unifying category that brings mankind together. It's a divisive one. Uh, it racializes uh, mankind. And so the, you can only achieve human unification by rejecting nature, in other words, for history. History had, of course, been a major preoccupation among Muslim writers from the 19th century, and Hali devoted a whole section of his musadas to its writing, though he judged such texts by their fidelity to nature, which was supposed to provide rational and objective criteria for historians. However, for Iqbal, history not only housed the origin of Islam's universality, but formed the substance of its character as well, since he thought that the human race had to achieve self-consciousness by setting itself against nature. In this way, the Ummah abandoned its relations with race and civilization to join ranks with 20th century ideologies, whose politics of class conflict and compromise was to be rendered meaningless within its universal embrace. So in other words, just as I tried to say that Sayyid Ahmad Khan and Hali, um, by focusing on nature, um, linked their notion of the Ummah and its universality to contemporary theories of race and uh, civilization in Europe, I'm suggesting that for Iqbal, Islam and its links to history, its universality linked to history, um, uh, relates the Ummah uh, to contemporary European debates on uh, political ideologies, communism and fascism in particular. Right? Remember these quotations are from the 1930s, from the mid and late 30s, just before the war. Yet this purely ideological foundation for human unity was by that very token remarkably vulnerable to attack, with Iqbal attributing Muslim conservatism, misplaced though it might be, 
to a glimmering recognition among the Prophet's followers that their religion and its universal mission was based upon nothing but a set of ideas. And I, I quote him. Islam repudiates the race idea altogether and founds itself on the religious idea alone. Since Islam bases itself on the religious idea alone, a basis which is wholly spiritual and consequently far more ethereal than blood relationship, Muslim society is naturally much more sensitive to forces which it considers harmful to its integrity. Thus is justification of conservatism. The very strength of Islam's universality, therefore, was paradoxically also its weakness, necessitating what might be called a fanatical attachment to the religious idea insofar as it cannot be naturalized and taken for granted. It's about the idea that has to be taught. It's not about the myth of racial inheritance or anything like that. Iqbal's view of Islam here comes close to that of Hegel, who defined that religion's modernity precisely by its attachment to an abstract idea of universality. And Iqbal, uh, some of you may know, was a philosopher uh, who studied at Cambridge with McTaggart and then at Heidelberg. Um, and so he was indeed very familiar with um, German uh, scholarship, both from McTaggart, his teacher at Cambridge, but also from studying in Germany and um, uh, reading uh, writing in German, translating. He translated a great deal from German from people like Goethe. While Hegel paired Islam with the Enlightenment in his admiring criticism of its universal ideal by saying that like the Enlightenment, Islam, according to Hegel, is actually uh, closer to the Enlightenment than to anything else, which might strike us uh, today as being somewhat counterfactual given um, newspaper discourse on the subject. Uh, but for Hegel, Islam was Enlightenment-like because of its attachment to the pure idea, its abstraction. He was critical of the Enlightenment in the same way that he was critical of Islam. But he thought both. Uh, entirely modern phenomena. So for Hegel, Islam is placed in the last stage of history in the German world, right. with Protestantism, with Luther, but not with Catholicism. <laughs> While Hegel then paired Islam with the Enlightenment and his admiring criticism of its universal ideal, in our own time, such an analysis has been directed more against 20th century ideologies like communism, also regarded as the Enlightenment's project. So you know all those that those themes of the utopian nature and the devotion to the idea of uh, communism that results in great violence. It's a kind of theme that probably goes back to Edmund Burke and his criticism of the French Revolution. And so it is no accident that for Iqbal, communism was Islam's greatest rival because it possessed a comparably universal mission, all of which only went to show that if the history of such ideas may be, might be claimed by Islam, only the immense effort required to instantiate them could prevent the disintegration and theft of the universality. Uh, my final section, second and last section, called the guilt of being still alive. The guilt of being still alive, sorry. Once Islamic concepts and categories are universalized in the language of humanity, moving outside the field of religious doctrine and practice, the Muslim community risks sinking into a particularity from which it must constantly be rescued. Thus, you always have to say, oh, it's nature that makes Islam universal, or it's history that makes Islam universal, right? It cannot provide the criteria for its own universality any longer, if it ever could. Lost within the universality of mankind, this community can only reclaim greatness by being faithful to the history of its founding. Even when this fidelity is so extensive as to determine the entirety of Muslim <coughs> lives, as among fundamentalists, for example, it still possesses a minimal character. For such all-encompassing forms of Islam continue to remain self-conscious minorities in the world beyond fundamentalism. 
But what allows loyalty to grasp at the universal is precisely its fragmentary character, whose devotion to the past is conceived as a practice of withdrawal from the inevitable partialities of the present. And the present, of course, belongs to, from Iqbal's time onwards, to democracy, where men jostle to represent the interests of the greatest number, and Islam's universality takes on a new countenance. Instead of embarking upon the futile task of representing the interests of all men, or even all Muslims, a number of thinkers following Iqbal argued that such political forms are both morally suspect and in any case appropriate to states alone. You know, the great examples uh, that are used by uh, um, self-professed followers of Iqbal, like the fundamentalist Abu al-Ala Maududi, the founder of arguably the most important Islamist movement, the Jamaat Islami of Pakistan, but now spread worldwide, would say that you know, we can't really trust democracy, though it's necessary at the same time. Because in a complete democracy, you would get, you could get the the, um, the, the um, legitimation of alcohol and gambling and all these things that are considered sins. Um, since the species cannot be represented politically, it is only the absence and indeed sacrifice of particular interests, and therefore politics itself in its conventional sense, that might capture its unity, or to put it in Iqbal's own words. I am opposed to nationalism as it is understood in Europe, not because if it is allowed to develop in India, it is likely to bring less material gain to Muslims. I am opposed to it because I see in it the germs of an atheistic materialism, which I look upon as the greatest danger to modern humanity. So he tries to evade the kind of interest-based nature of what he sees as national politics altogether. It's not a question of we must safeguard Muslim interests. It's we must sacrifice even our own material interests uh, for this idea, right? for a spiritual idea. Like Ayman al-Zawahiri's Hippocratic ideal, the kind of loyalty broached by Muhammad Iqbal is thus sacrificial in form, claiming to abandon the self-interest that defines politics by pointing to the disinterestedness of its practices. And so it is no longer the contested claim to some common interest that defines humanity, but rather its negation for a set of ideals and historical peculiarities that appear meaningless in the calculus of interests defining political representation. Islam has therefore come to represent mankind by sacrificing the very possibility of interest in the supposedly archaic demands it makes upon Muslims, for instance regarding forms of dress or comportment whose antiquated providence and incomprehensibility to modern minds only guarantee their impartial character. The turn to history, in other words, has little to do with the romance and nostalgia that are characteristic of nationalist approaches to the past, and is certainly not an effort to put the clock back, as fundamentalism's liberal critics assert. For it is precisely because the culture of Islam's origin is dead, and its hab uh, it is dead that its habits can be universalized into a kind of um, technical routine, freed of cultural particularity, and therefore political interest. Indeed, this form of Muslim devotion rejects the very idea of culture to focus on abstract and dislocated practices that make religion into something fully portable and universally convertible. This is a theme that um, Olivia Ra has um, emphasized in his book on globalized Islam, uh, with which I agree. It's uh, very interesting to note that the attachment to the Islamic past is very unlike the attachment to the nationalist past um, of, as it was, secular nationalists. It's not a romance of returning to it. Um, or somehow, you know, they, they're not writing historical novels about the prophet or anything, though they could, in 
recognize it. Um, it's not a nationalist uh, retrieval of the past. Uh, it's not making the past come alive. It is, as it were, um, identifying practices uh, and habits uh, that are dislocated from the present, that are dislocated from a politics of interest, right? For someone like Iqbal or Mawdoubi after him. Um, and that therefore, as it were, place the believer at an angle with that kind of democratic politics. They might be democratic in other respects, right? They'll vote and do all of that. That's not a problem. Um, it's simply a question of not wanting a, a, a fear of being divided up as Muslims uh, into ethnic and class-based groups. Right? So the only way you can actually uh, allay that fear is to step away from that kind of politics altogether and define yourself by the attachment to a past which is a dead past, which has no interest built into it, supposedly. <clears throat> now, obviously, one can criticize this notion, but it is very powerful. And what's interesting about it is that, therefore, the attachment to this past is not a romantic or nationalist attachment. Right? The past and its practices, um, as Olivier Ra tells us, can be you know, made quite um, a part of everyday life in the most unnostalgic way. So as Ra points out, you know, halal food, right? Eating properly slaughtered uh, food, animals. This has nothing to do with the culture and the, and, 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 and the Islamists who we talk about who, who espouse that practice don't see it as somehow being part of their inherited culture. Uh, because the food, it could be anything. It could be Chinese food, it could be Thai food, it could be, it could be any sort of food. As long as it's rich, you know, it's been prepared in the correct way. It has nothing to do with anything inherited or of origin. It's a practice that is fully portable and mobile. It can, be, it can attach itself to almost anything, apart, of course, from pork and alcohol and things like that. Um, similarly with Islamic dress, etc. It's not a question of, I want to dress like you know, uh, women dressed 500 years ago. No. Uh, forms of Islamic dress are deliberately not, in fact, uh, modeled upon earlier uh, you know, versions of veiling and things like that. You know? And therefore, you can have fashions. That's not a problem at all. Uh, so the attachment of the past and, it, and the, the engagement of history is very, very interesting and, and different from what one often thinks. Such, at least, was the argument that is to say the convertibility and the portability of this past, this history, which is, in fact, so convertible and portable because it's dead. Such at least was the argument put forward by the Pakistani fundamentalist whom I mentioned, Abul Ala Maududi, who supplemented the older naturalization of Islam's universality with this new faith in the resources of history as I have defined it. Thus he contended that the more resistant Muslim practices were to the rationality of political representation, the less likely would their misuse be in the politics of class or ethnic particularity, the fear of nationalism and of class conflict. Taking up Muhammad Iqbal's concern with the finality of prophethood, Maududi and his political party, the Jamaat-e-Islami, criticized the Shia and Sufis whose reverence for spiritual leaders coming after the prophet was held to compromise the latter's role in barring all access to divine authority. For it was only by putting a stop to God's intervention in the present that humanity could become a historical, an historical actor, if only in the disinterested practice of what had in fact become a dead religion. Baududi's particular ire was reserved for the Ahmadis, an Indian movement founded in the 19th century that claimed its founder to be the recipient of divine revelation. Thinking like Iqbal before him that Ahmadi teachings undermined Islam's historical role in representing humanity, Maududi spearheaded a violent campaign against them in Pakistan, 
that eventually resulted in the Ahmadis being declared non-Muslims for, in fact, bringing God back to life. After all, since Ahmadis are as rigorous about following the inherited practices of Islam as the most orthodox of Sunnis, it was not any threat that posed these devotions that was feared so much as their perceived attack on humanity itself as an historical subject. By bringing divinity back, you destroy the human race. And so it was to safeguard this freedom that Maududi made neutrality and disinterest into the touchstones of Islam's universality by focusing on a life lived for the sake of God alone. That's why you eat certain ways, you dress in a certain way, you behave in a certain way. You remove yourself. For these attitudes are only possible once the deity has been expelled from history and his apostles' injunctions have assumed the form of so much detritus whose everyday functionality or beneficial consequences cannot overshadow their pointlessness as the remains of a past long gone. If in Maududi's eyes Muslims could represent the human race by sacrificing their particular interests and living for the sake of God alone, today's militants concentrate on death in God's way as the only kind of sacrifice capable of representing humanity. Like the otherwise very different Muslim thinkers and movements I have already described, terrorist argumentation is marked by the familiarity and even intimacy with which, it, with which it approaches those seen as the enemies of Islam. So Al-Qaeda's foes are considered to be people of the same kind as its friends, their supposed persecution of Muslims being re reciprocated by the latter in procedures of mirroring that make it difficult to tell one from the other. And we know this, right? You kill 10 of ours, we'll kill 10 of yours. You kill women and children, we'll kill women and children. There's no claim made to, to um, as it were, uh, to any independence even in this, independence of action in this logic of mirroring. Instead of dehumanizing their enemies or even condemning them to subhuman status in the name of race or civilization, militants routinely aspire to compete with such foes in virtue as well as vice, something we have seen in Zavaris utterances quoted above. But without defining humanity by means of a hierarchy, Osama bin Laden's acolytes are unable to establish any firm distinction between friends and enemies. So refusing to take responsibility for acts of violence by describing these merely as responses to infidel provocation does more than excuse such crimes. It serves to account for the dispersal of responsibility in a global arena where all are complicit in crimes against humanity, whether these are concerned with environmental degradation or genocide. Recall, Zawahiri actually mentions the climate change and environmental degradation. Not accidentally, the only act militants claim full responsibility for is the minimal yet excessive one of martyrdom. Sacrifice, therefore, becomes the only distinctive element in Al-Qaeda's rhetoric, which otherwise shares everything with its foes. So all the other actions are, we're doing it because you're doing it. We have a right to respond in kind. The only thing they actually claim for themselves that begins with them is martyrdom, sacrifice of the self. Not the common virtues and vices of men, therefore, but the claim to martyrdom is what demonstrates Islam's universality in militant circles. Though even such practices of sacrifice can be stolen from Muslims and so, much be, and so must be repeated in the most egregious of ways. And martyrdom is crucial because humanity cannot be represented in any positive fashion, lacking as it does a political or juridical form, despite being invoked by lawyers and statesmen at every turn. And that as the supposed abnegation of all particularity and interest, sacrifice constitutes a kind of negative embodiment of the race. It provides, in fact, the most appropriate manifestation of this mysterious being, the human race, which exists without having become a subject in the global arena.
but such an embodiment of the species is not peculiar to Muslim terrorists and may be found in the sacrificial practices of many who, dedicated themselves, who dedicate themselves to humanitarian causes, from pacifists and environmentalists to those engaged in aid and relief work. Indeed, the idea of sacrificing oneself for humanity has a long and explicitly Christian history, having become common sense in the story of Jesus as a martyr not for God's sake, but for that of mankind. Representing as they do the most, um, the most excessive forms of sacrifice, militant acts of martyrdom may be said to have placed themselves at the vanguard of all such procedures of embodiment. And I come to my conclusion in a couple of pages now. The philosopher Karl Jaspers was perhaps the first to see varieties of sacrifice like martyrdom as efforts to trace the lineaments of a species that could not otherwise be represented. In a lecture of 1945, subsequently published under the title The Question of German Guilt, Jaspers distinguished traditional forms of guilt, such as the moral, political, and criminal, from something he called metaphysical guilt. This latter, he said, was felt by those who were innocent of wrongdoing in all its conventional senses, but continued nevertheless to accuse themselves of living while others had died under Nazi rule. Though he took Germany as his example, of a place in which metaphysical guilt had come to the fore, Jaspers was clear that fascism and the war it occasioned provided only the origins of this widespread phenomenon, which arose out of the fact that responsibility could no longer be confined to, indi to particular individuals or groups in events like the Second World War and belonged instead to the history of mankind, the war itself being, of course, a global event. And I cite Jaspers, it is only now that history has finally become world history the global history of mankind. So our own situation can be grasped only together with the world historical one. What has happened today has its causes in general human events and conditions, and only secondarily uh, in special intranational relations and the decisions of single groups of men. So as a world event, you can't reduce the Second World War to, you know, the, 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 as it were, desires and fantasies and interests of particular individuals alone. The problem, of course, is that humanity has no political or juridical status and thus does not exist as a subject of history. Yet, yet it cannot be said to be a fiction either. And Jaspers tells us that metaphysical guilt is a sign of the race's otherwise invisible solidarity, betraying as it does a consciousness of shared responsibilities in the global arena brought to light by the war. Another quotation. Metaphysical guilt is the lack of absolute solidarity with the human being as such, an indelible claim beyond morally meaningful duty. This solidarity is violated by my presence at a wrong or a crime. It is not enough that I cautiously risk my life to prevent it. If it happens, and if I was there, and if I survive where the other is killed, I know from a voice within myself I am guilty of being still alive. Going beyond all moral, legal, and political determinations of responsibility, metaphysical guilt invokes the species as a potential subject of history if only by the desire to die in its name. For dying alone provides access to its negative being. Jaspers points out that such examples of unconditional, unconditioned sacrifice are to be found and are indeed celebrated at the level of the family or between lovers, the source of metaphysical guilt being that they are not available or, or, only, or very rarely so at a purely human level. Um, last quotation from him. That somewhere among men the unconditioned prevails, the capacity to live only together or not at all if crimes are committed against the one or the other, or if physical living requirements have to be shared, 
therein consists the substance of their being. But that this does not extend to the solidarity of all men, nor to that of fellow citizens or even of smaller groups, but remains confined to the closest <coughs> human ties, therein lies the guilt of us all. So he says, look, it, is, it happens all the time. It happens every day. Parents sacrifice themselves for their children, children for their parents, lovers for each other, etc. By confining his analysis to the guilt of being alive, Karl Jaspers is able to deal with death in the form of desire alone. I would like to suggest, however, that the contemporary practice of Muslim martyrdom acts upon this desire to answer the call of an invisible humanity. For whatever the political calculations of Al-Qaeda and other movements that value sacrifice, their rhetoric of dedication to the species is founded upon metaphysical guilt alone. How else do Osama bin Laden's minions justify their acts of violence if not by invoking the guilt of living while others die? These others are not the terrorist relatives, friends or even countrymen, but unknown people in unknown lands who by their suffering represent the race's victimization and lack of historical subjectivity. Indeed, the global Muslim community serves as a kind of model of humanity insofar as it, too, possesses neither political nor juridical reality and exists for militants only in the spectacle of its apparent victimization. Muslim community globally does not exist, as we know. It has no political or juridical existence. It only exists in this way when you see people being killed on television. Dying for Islam, therefore, means acknowledging the existence of Muslim solidarity around the world and in the same moment the solidarity of the species as well. For in the end, it is their unfettered hold over the language and practice of sacrifice that allows militants to represent their own community together with the human race itself as historical subjects, both of which enjoy the curious distinction of existing without existing in the global arena. Thank you. Thank you very much.